Hi, everybody. Welcome along to episode 73 of Percussion Discussion. First of all, please check out our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, our world-famous YouTube channel. And if you wouldn't mind subscribing, it really does help us, helps us get the word out there. Uh, plus, this way, it means you won't miss, miss even any of the upcoming episodes, of which there are plenty. If you would prefer to listen on the go, you can find all of our conversations in podcast form on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Feel free to go and download those and listen at your leisure. On to today's guest, um, a, a great, great British drummer who's played with some legendary British artists from the likes of Stretch, Judy Zook, uh, the Climax Blues Band, and for 14 years he held the drum stool with legendary British rockers status quo. It gives me immense pleasure to welcome the wonderful drummer and the wonderful gentleman that is Mr. Jeff Rich. Jeff, thanks so much for doing this, mate. It's very kind of you. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and I see you're sitting behind a, a, a very gorgeous, <coughs> super classic Ludwig there as well. So Yeah, yeah. I keep that set up at the moment in, the, in my office. Um, I, I, I have got a few kits, but that's been in a loft. I can't like living in a loft for too long. I like setting them up and then... You know, just to making sure they're in tune now. Because I do use it on gigs now and again. I, I use it a lot for recordings. It sounds so good in the, in the studio. Wonderful sounding things. And that looks in particularly yeah. good condition as well, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's incredible. The, 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 the chrome, I can't believe it's a 66 because the chrome is, is not come out of the factory. Yeah. It's, in, it's slightly faded, but it's so faded that everyone's the same. So it looks good, you know. Yeah. So... Lovely. It's nice. It's a nice kit. Very nice. Well, look, you know, um, as I say, I appreciate you doing this. Um, so I, I, we've been, sorry, we have been in some very strange times this last sort of two We certainly years. have. Have you, have you managed to keep doing anything or has it just been a quiet time for you? Um, well, there's been no gigs up until a couple of months ago. Um, so that was just, and then, of course, you know, I visit schools as well. Yeah. And I'll be doing lots of workshops where they all went to the up to the wayside as well. So it was left to just <laughs> just be with my family and, and do things that, at home that I wouldn't normally do, you know, and, and make sure my garden was up to sort it out. <laughs> Did lots of gardening <laughs> and uh, take the dogs for loads of walks. My dogs kept looking at me saying, What, another walk? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, apart from that, yeah, just. As we're all musicians I know in the same boat, you know, it was just we had to get on with life as best we could, really. Watching loads of films, yeah. serious. I mean, I'm a sci-fi buff, so I've watched loads of stuff on, on sort of Netflix and that sort of thing, you know. So yeah. But what can you do? You have to do it. Luckily now, I mean I've started to do shows again. It's not too bad. So that's good. Well, do you know what? The way you've you've just said that, it sounds idyllic, doesn't it? Like, oh, I've had two years with the family, the guy. <laughs> it would be idyllic if I was retired and I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But, I, I mean, I could retire. I'm past the age of retirement, so well past. But, uh, no, I, I I thrive on doing music. And, like, I'm a musician. You want to play. That's what you want to do. Unless physically I couldn't do it, that's different. But if, well, if I'm physically okay to play, that's what I want to do. Simple as that. It, it, you know, I don't have to tell, speak to you about preaching to the converted now, but when you get behind a kit and you're playing with different guys and musicians, there's nothing like it, is it? There's the best feeling in the world. And it, you try and describe that to people, but unless you, 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 you've done it yourself, it's hard to tell them. You know, you can't describe the feeling you get when you're playing... Even now, when I sit behind a kit, I get the same thing as I did when I first started playing. It's the same thing, you know. And when, I, when that goes, I know it's time to stop. But it will never go. It, it is. It's a disease, and I'm convinced of it, you know. But it is. But it's a nice disease. Oh, it? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't die of it, but I'm sure there have been a few divorces over the years. Well, I'm sure there's been plenty. Well, <laughs> bugging my first marriage, that was for sure. <laughs> I was uh, I was married for my first for 27 years I was married right, right which is a long time okay and I would think I must have seen my ex missus out of that 27 years maybe six or seven years possibly 
<laughs> I was never there. I was always around tour. And if you weren't touring, you were in the studio. And if you were in the studio, you were doing TVs. It was just like your life wasn't your own. You were just away all the time, which was great when you're young. That's your- but then when you start getting a bit older, you want to, because I never saw my first two kids grow up. Yeah. It was never there. So, you know, people think, oh, in a rock band, tour in the world, great, great for single. Yeah. But when you've got family, no, it's not. The two don't quite go together. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, look, you, you touched on something there, Jeff, about um, going around the schools and, and, and doing your shows. Now, I've done this yeah. on a smaller scale when I worked for Yamaha for some years doing it, but yeah. you do it on quite a grand scale. Do you want to talk about that? Because I, I find it really well, Pretty interesting. Yeah, I've been to about over 6,000 now, which is daunting, to be honest. So now I think about 6,000 schools, it's mad. But when I I first got into it through when my kid, my first two kids were at school and the head came to me and said, look, I know what you do. Uh, would you come and talk to the kids? We're getting different parents from different walks of life to come in, speak to the kids about what they do so they get an idea of what's going on in the outside world. Or not. So I did a watered-down version of my, my workshop. I put my kit in, and I used the school's percussion, and it was all interactive because I'd always collected drums anyway, lots of African drums. And, that. and then the local schools heard about it. They got in touch with me. The, the deputy head became a head in another school. He got in touch with me. Can you come to my school? We'll pay you, blah, blah, blah. Cut a long story short, I had schools from, I did an article, the TES came down, did an article, Times Education Summit. I had schools from all over the country, because pre-internet pre, pre um, internet days, yeah, Jeff, can you come to our school? Can you come to our school? And I thought... This is interesting, right? Because eventually I will stop with the band. And what am I gonna what am I gonna do? You know, I want to do keep going. So I set it up as a business. Yeah, sure. And it became really successful. And uh, I love doing the workshops. I don't do as many now, I do about maybe a week a month at the most, maybe a week every couple of months. I don't, you know, it's not as many as I used to do because I don't want to do that many anymore. But I love doing it. And it's all about inspiration for kids. So I do in a primary school, we do up to 300 kids, and they all play, because at the end, I'll have 150 up a time playing percussion with me. It's called organised chaos. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then in the secondary school, it's roughly about 200 in the workshop. And of course, then in the secondary school, I can get drummers up playing the kit. Yeah. And they love that, because I've got a big DW kit I use in the schools, like two top toms, two floors, you know, a lot of lot of drums and cymbals and all that, but it looks the kids coming. They go, oh, awesome! You know this business because they can let them. Not them. I'm seeing a kid that that close up, that big. So for them, it's it's great, and it's all about inspiration and aspirations. And what my 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 message to them is: whatever you put in, you'll get out. Yeah, like that. So if you work, I mean, I used to practice two hours a day, and I tell the kids this. It doesn't come instantly, you know. You know what it's like. You have to work hard. And then there's no guarantee that you're going to make it as a musician. But I've always said to kids, look, even if you do it on a weekend, you're out your mates playing in pubs, great. It's a social thing as well, isn't it? But, but the schools, are, it's a real grounding for me. It's the real world as well. It's great. I love doing it. I love, I love inspiring the kids. Well, I, I think it's fantastic because there's so many kids who you know, it's one thing watching drummers on YouTube. There's nothing like sitting in front of a drummer behind a real kit. And it's it's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. That's the thing. Feel it rather than hear it, don't you? you know? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, anybody watching who thinks, I want a bit of this, can can they, I mean, I'll put your website up at the end of the... the... Yeah, yeah, they can go to the website and email me. Um, and... Uh, I'll have a look at where they are. And then what I normally do is, because I've been to so many schools, a lot of heads know about it anyway now. I mean, it's really weird. I go into schools now and I get teachers coming up and saying to me, you came to my primary school when I was like 10 years old. Yeah. And I've never forgotten it. I've always remembered the whole thing, which is nice. You know, it's it's something you never forget, isn't it? So um, 
I've, I've got to have the UK do it, and I've got a technician who comes in with me. So, and we're staying in a hotel. We get, we're based ourselves in a hotel, and we do like three or four days in the area yeah. and use the hotel each day to go visit the schools. Sounds about perfect, that. Yeah, it's, it's good. I, enjoy, I love it. So let's let's jump back a couple of years to where, where kind of drumming caught fire for you, Jeff, and music in general, you know, what, whichever came first. I don't know. Right. I was nine years old, yeah. and I turned on the telly, and it was a film, <laughs> black and white film, with Gene Krupa playing in it. And... I saw this guy playing, and it, it was like Animal from the Muppets. It was the first drummer that ever I'd seen that ever attacked a kid. Yeah. You know, it wasn't one of these that just, like, he was going for it. And I thought, that is, um, that's, all, that's what I want to do. Because I was always tapping on things. Always my mum's knitting needles and pots and pans and stuff. Because my background, I come from quite a, a, a deprived background. My parents literally didn't have a pot to piss in. Yeah. They, you know, they had nothing. And so I ended up having to buy all my equipment. Now, it's not that they didn't want to do it for me, sure. but they just couldn't, couldn't do it. They both worked hard, but there wasn't any spare money around. So I got little jobs cleaning windows and, you know, cars and going out with a bucket and, do you want your car clean, mister? And all this business. And I saw in a shop in Hackney, where I used to live, I saw a drum for sale in the window with a little symbol cut. It was called a cat kit. Right. Right. So it was a, a calf head on it. Like we were talking about calf heads before. So I had a calf head on it. Blue spark. It was a John Gray autocrat. So I'll never forget it. And I, I went in and I said, look, I'd like to buy the drum. And he said, well, how much have you got? And I said, well, I can give you a deposit. And he gave me this little blue car. And every week I come in, he paid a two and sixpence off, you know, it was nine pounds nine or something, you know. It's like, you know, nothing, but then a lot of money in those days. Of course, of course. And then I bought, eventually I bought it, and then I got a, an old bass drum from somewhere else and a few cymbals. I bought, I, I made a, like, a kit up from bits and pieces, and it went from there, really. Isn't it? But don't you appreciate it more when you have to work? Oh, so much more. And that's what, that's what I sell. You know, kids that say, "Oh, I can't, I can't afford." I say, "If you want to do it, you'll do it. You'll find some, you'll find little jobs to do, and you'll go out like I did. If you are desperate to do it, you can do it yourself. But you've got to have that passion. And the problem is now is that there are so many distractions for kids. For instance, your mobile phones and laptops and God knows what games and all this stuff. I've got my, I've got a little boy of twelve. So I know what's happening. He's a good drummer. He's a lovely drummer. He plays a bit of bass. Great. But there's so many distractions for him now. Oh. That's the thing. But you will get one or two kids to go, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. Because the thing is, once it gets hold of you, that's it, isn't it? You know, it's- Of course it is. And, you know, and it's funny because my son, who's 12, he came to me and said, I'm, I'm playing um, a Jeff Beck song at the moment. And, I'm, and then I'm doing a Hendrix song. I'm thinking... It's incredible that music it will never die. That stuff because it was so good when it was first came, and it's still holding its own against all the other stuff that's around. There's still young kids that want to play that music free. Those sort of bands, you know, there's, there's loads of young kids that want to play it. Now, as you say, they're going to be they're going to be around forever. Those songs, they're just simple as that, you know. But, yeah, but back to the kit. So I got the kit sorted, and, I, and then I, from there I bought a premier kit. You know the one we had to sort of, um, it looked like wood, but it wasn't. It was like a, like a wood cov- covering. The, uh, uh, but, uh, ma- mahogany Duraplast. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 I remember the, the top tone was a 14-inch, but not that deep. I can't remember the depth of it. And then a foot floor tom, kick drum and snare. But I loved the kit. I mean, it was for me, it was a, the best thing ever to get that kit. And I used to play them. And I remember practicing in my, my my bedroom. And the first one of the first times I ever bought was about uh, Santana at Braxis. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was practicing to that and then some of the host stuff. And so I was just, but I was so lucky to come up in that, in that era when there was, Hendrix and The Who and 
Cream with Ginger Baker and, and, and all these fantastic bands. And I was going to see them live. I used to go down a club called the Marquee Club in London. And I saw I saw these guys. I saw Hendrix there. I saw The Who. I saw Zeppelin with Bonham in this club. And at the time, there were bands that were just beginning to make it, you know, coming up. And the, the Marquee was a prestigious place to play, you know. So for me, it was unbelievable to see. And I, I took all those influences from me playing. That's how I got influenced by these players. You were definitely born at the right time, weren't you? That was it. Oh, so it would have been, so I was born in 53, so I was 63, about mid-60s mid, mid onwards, I was going to the Marquee Club. Wow, that's just, uh, I mean, when, when you compare it to what we've got today, it, it just doesn't compare, does it? Don't get me wrong, there's some great artists out there, but it's not the, it's just not the same. The, the problem now is there aren't as many venues as well. You could go to, I mean, I, I used to go to London and there was some, I used to go to a Lyceum and go to an all-nighter in the Lyceum. I used to go to um, the Speakeasy in London, yeah. which was about a members club, but it was fantastic. You know, Hendrix was there one night in a Speakeasy, you know, just getting up and playing. It was just unbelievable. And all these fantastic players. There's not clubs like that anymore in London. Not for musicians. That that night, that night of the speakeasy, Vanilla Fudge weren't there as well, were they? Oh, can't remember now. It was such a long time ago. I just remember Hendrix being there. But that is, so, I remember the, the Faces were there one night. All these, uh, Rod Stewart and all these different people. But you used to go down there because it was, a, it was a drinking club, but they had a stage there. And people used to get up and play. Crazy, isn't it? Just, can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm guessing, you know, once you, you've done your, your practice and you were out, joined a band and what have you, and that was that. Well, yeah, 13, um, I was in a band uh, in, from school. And because I was quite, I was never that tall. I was quite small when, when I was a kid. So I used to get bullied a bit. But as soon as I got into a band in school, all of a sudden, he's cool. <laughs> he's in a band, he's cool. All of a sudden, from nowhere, no one touched me anymore. That was it. and. I'll never forget, I, I was playing somewhere and this guy came up to me and said, I'm in a band, Would you? we're looking for a drummer. And I was 13 at the time. And he was like in his late 20s, early 30s. He said, I know you're young, but I, I, I think we, you know, you'd fit in really well with the band. So I said, okay. And he said, where are you playing? I said, we're playing in a pub. We do it every Sunday in a place called Shoreditch, which is in London. So he didn't tell me anything else about the, the, the band. He gave me songs to learn. I learned all the songs. Put my stuff in a cab. I told my mum I was going for rehearsal. I didn't tell mum I was going for, to do a gig. <laughs> so I turned up at this club, uh, and where a pub it was, and we set up. And he said, right, so first of all, for the first hour, we're backing the strippers. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, I thought, what? They said, we're back in strippers to start with. Now, I'm 13 years old. I was sitting this bar, and all the guys are quite, you know, all the guys in the band. So I had to play along back in all these strippers. And in the second set, we played our own, their own stuff, you know, covers and all that. So then when I got home, my mum said, I never, ever told her what I was doing because she wouldn't, she, I would never have been allowed out. But in those days, it was different, wasn't it? You know, so, and I used to, and I used to, it was a regular thing for quite a few, a year or so. Amazing. Back in strippers and playing in pubs at 13. Oh, <laughs> just can't imagine these days, can you, that just... No, no, it wouldn't happen, would it, really? No, you'd, you'd have, um, you know, child people wear down, you know, whatever, whatever counts would come down, God knows what. Oh, dear. But... So there was there was just nothing nothing like that in those days. You just turn up and and, and played. And of course, I, I was competent to do it at thirteen. Yeah. So was, yeah, that's was it always in your mind that you were going to do it as a profession? Was it always there? Oh yeah, that's all I wanted to do. That's all I ever wanted to play was was play play music. Um, my mum wanted me to go to university. 
And I was really good at English. English was some like subject in school, English and history and geography. And um, I got my GCSEs and then they were good at GCEs, GCEs then, weren't they, at that time. But and my mum thought I was going to start at school under A-levels. And well, I said, so I want, I want to leave, but I don't want to do it. She was mortified. I said, I know what I want to do, Mum. I want to, I want to go out and play, you know, and do so. She said, well, you'll never make a living at it. I said, oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> and she was so proud. She, she, but my parents were really um, supportive of what I did, even though there was lean times as well, because being a musician, you, you, you're, gonna, you're not going to go into everything straight away. You've got to have lean times where you're out of work and you've got to do other bits. You know, I would, I would drive minicabs and stuff like that. Just to get some money. Sure. So, yeah, you you just got to be patient and hope that the, your face fits in because you go to local auditions. So, hopefully, you, you get the right one. Well, you've played some amazing bands over the years. You can zoop being one. Um, uh, Climax. Definitely. Climax, Climax Blues Band. But the, the funny thing is, God. yeah, the fu- the funny thing is with Climax is that. I'm actually playing in a band at the moment with a guy called Chris Newman, who was involved with Climax as well. Great player. And they're called the Barefoot Doctors. And we're actually doing, we just were learning a song at the moment called Chasing Change, which is a Climax number. And couldn't get it right as well, we're doing in the, in the band, which is bizarre because I remember doing it so many years ago. Uh, they're a great band. Oh, yeah, superb. Because I know Roy Roy plays for them at the moment, doesn't he? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, yeah. Good drummer. Really good player. Very, very good. And then there's another band that I didn't realise you were associated with and a band I love, and that is Stretch. Oh, oh yeah. Great band. Now, this weird Stretch, they had a hit single called Why Did You Do It? Okay, yep. Which was not representative of what the band was about. Like, Stretch were a rock band, out and out rock band, bluesy rock, you know, a lot bit of blues in it. And they have a hit single, and everyone thought the band was a, a funk band oh. because of that, that one single. And we got booked into all these gigs after the singles are hit, clubs, and we turned up one. Now, remember in Spennymore? You know a place called Spennymore? Which is in the Top Hat Club in Spennymore and we got there and we were using they, the band that bought Led Zeppelin's PA system oh god right okay and they put it into this club <laughs> and we used to start the song with a, rank, a, a song called you can't judge a book by looking at this cover it's an old Bo Diddley song we used to play it like I said like a heavy thing and uh, we did the song and at the end we stopped and it was like <laughs> like a cricket match <laughs> and we thought this isn't good because they were hurt they were, and of course we did all the songs and we got to why did you do it and the whole place went mad oh, and of course next song it was all because they didn't know any of their stuff yeah of course because it, it is a real funky tune that and uh, it's- yeah yeah it was a great song but it wasn't representative of what the band did the band was great Elmer Gantry on vocals like Kirby who used to play with Curved Air great guitar player uh, bass player was fantastic Paul Martinez on bass really really good players really good players but unfortunately <sighs> they just they had the really bad management manager screwed about a lot of money record company were in day interested in the band it just sort of petered out really which is a shame well I, as far as far as I'm aware another past guest from this show Nico McBrain actually had a spell with them unless I he did Nico did yeah after I left yeah. he came in uh, the band stopped for a little while and then they started again and they, they got on hold of me but I was doing other stuff by then and then they got Nico in to do an album I think and some gigs and all that yeah this is before he, he got in, into uh, um, what was it 
Was he playing with? Oh, Maiden. I made. Oh, Maiden. I made. That's right. Yeah. So he was he was with them for for years after that. But that yeah, he did he did stretch. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he was, he, he's from London, isn't he? He's, he's um yeah, wet wet you wet. It's one of those, you know, Cockney. Is he West Ham sort of area? I'm not sure. But... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's sent to London somewhere. Yeah. And then uh, we, we have to mention Def Leppard as well because we, you know, it's 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 kind of a major. Not a major thing, maybe for you, major well, in, in history of, of how it came about, you know? Well, yeah, I, I just got, I was working with Judy Zook at the time, yeah. and our sound guy had his brother with him. Now, his brother was Rick Allen, the drummer. And yeah. um, in between uh, tours of America, they just breaking the States. With um, Pyromania at the time, and he was a bit bored. So his brother said, "Come on the road with me. I'm doing Judy Zook's tour." So he came on the road, and I remember at the sound check, he came up to me. He was only about eighteen, nineteen. Jeff, how do you play this? Jeff is really keen, right? And he's a good drummer, you know. And I'll show him bits and pieces on the kit and all that. And then this leopard just went through the roof in America. They just couldn't, you know, they, they, they were there all the time after that. They, they, they hit big, huge in America. And I lost contact with him. Then I get a phone call from um, the tour manager, who was Judy Zook's old tour manager, Mike Rogers. Jeff, we've got a problem. I, I'd heard that Rick had an accident, a car accident, and I'd heard that he lost his arm. Yeah. And I got in touch with the hospital and all that. I couldn't get to speak to him at the time. And then he said, would you be interested in becoming part of the band, like helping Rick get an electronic kit? Because they, they think he can still play with one arm, but using the electronic kits. Now, this is interesting because if it would have happened five years earlier, he wouldn't have been able to do that because technology wasn't there, especially the microchip te technology. But Simmons got involved, Simmons drums. They got a kit set up. And I went over to Holland to, to meet them. They were recording Hysteria at the time and Visceral Studios. And I stayed with them for a little while and um, we had a little studio set up with two kits and he'd have his electronic kit and then we'd have to get these special um, triggers made. So whereas I, I would go around the kit like that, yeah. he'd go snare, snare, pad, tom, tom, pad, tom, tom, pad. Right, so go. Da, 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 da. So he'd have to learn. We don't know how to play without 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 arm missing. Wow. So his fire hat would be in a closed position all the time until he found now that he can get one. He can swap between the two. It's incredible the way he's done it. That's, incredible. Incre I mean, that's that's relearning everything again. That's starting from scratch, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's totally different. So you imagine trying to go around a kit with your left foot, with your left, left oh. arm is. Yeah, it's mental. But he did it. And then we went out and did gigs together. Yeah. Did a tour, um, did some warm-up shows in, in Ireland, Southern Ireland. And then we got to one gig and we couldn't get two kits on the stage. Yeah. And I said to him, look, I said, why don't I go up the back? Because I was getting, I was doing Quo as well at that time. Yeah. I'd already done an album for Quo, and they were hustling me to, to join them and all that. And so I thought, well, this is a good way of me, you know, because I would never have been part of the top band. I was just a paid musician, really. So uh, watched this gig. At the end of the gig, I went up to him and I took his and I said, you're on your own, mate. That's fantastic. And that was it. And and then I went off to do the crow to the crow thing. That's a lovely story, that isn't it? It's nice to have been part of that whole transition. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great that the band actually, because a lot of bands would have gone getting our drummer in. Yeah, yeah. That's it. No, they wanted him to play. And look, I'm not been not being cynical or anything like that, but there's also a great angle, especially for the. The, the manager at the time, a guy called Peter Menge, he was this savvy American guy who, who, who immediately saw 
the old pound signs, the dollar signs come up, you know. What, the only one on rock drum in the world, you know. Big, big publicity. And so uh, that was partly to do with that whole thing. But it was great they stuck with him. And, of course, you know, the rest is history. He, he's still playing live with them. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of, it kind of redefined the... Uh... The Ze- uh, sorry, the Def Leppard sound, didn't it? Really, and it's it's made it more, I don't know, more uh, more accessible for everybody, pop fans. Well, yeah. Uh, the other thing is, it's a bit of a, like a karma thing in a way because he never played on Pyromania or Hysteria. It was all Fairlight. Ah, I didn't know that. Right. So. That didn't affect anything as far as the band was concerned because it was all done by the machine anyway. Right. So, and then once he could play again with this new system, now when they do a record now, he actually plays on the stuff again. Some of it, it, they might do a few uh, with the computer, but a lot of it's just him playing now. So, in that respect, he was lucky that they'd gone down that, that route, if you like. It's, well, it, hey, it works perfectly, doesn't it? As we know, tried and tested. Um, oh, yeah. So, Oops, yes. we're on to Quo. Now, you kind, the of, quo. You, you <laughs> kind of shaped a lot of my early um, uh, childhood drumming, I suppose. The first single I ever bought with my own money was In the Army now. I remember that one well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I have to say, a slightly... Um, a slightly unusual style. For very. Very synth. Very. Yeah. What a great very, style. That's an interesting one because what happened, I we got me, the bass player, Rhino, uh, we got asked to join Corona through a bit of a weird way because we were doing sessions. We worked together a lot as, as, a, as a, you know, with Climax Booze Band, Judy Zoop as a rhythm section and all that. So, when we got asked, we we don't we got asked to do an album uh, for this um, Norwegian singer called Tron Goodland. He was, and the, the 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 guy that played guitar on the sessions was a guy called Pip Williams, who was the Crow's producer. So Pip said to us at the end of the session. I might have some work for you, boys. And I thought, well, I've heard this all before. You know, I didn't say anything. He took my number. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, said, yeah, it's Pitt. I've got an album for you, and, and my nose are doing It's Rick Parfitt's solo album, okay. which incidentally never got released, but that's by the by, called Recorded Delivery. Anyway, we did the album. Great album, really good album, actually. And then at that point, Quo was still, they weren't going to do any more gigs. They were signed to still play, make albums for, for Polygram. So they had to do a new album. And Alan Lancaster, the old bass player, rest his soul, he's passed away, but he lived in Australia. He wouldn't come back to record. He wanted them to go. They said, no, we're not going to go to Australia. He wouldn't come back. The drummer they weren't happy with. Uh, and he'd gone. So they needed a rhythm section. So Pip said, I know the guys. These two guys he was from Bricks. So Francis wasn't too keen because right. he hated change. We got to the first rehearsal and Francis is sitting there, you know, playing on this, thinking, oh, God, you know, who are these two guys? We started up. I think we started with whatever you want. Whatever you want. We started playing. He's gone, whoa. Because yeah, we, we sort of give it a kick up the arse, yeah, yeah. you know. And it was a bit tri- a bit ploddy before. And all of a sudden it's like, and he's like, whoa, this is fucking great. And from there, you know, we just we did rehearsals and then we went in and did the album. Well, that number was written by two Dutch guys called Bolland and Bolland. Okay. It was a minor hit in Holland, not big, uh, but the producer heard it and he thought, this would be great for this album. Well, we never realised how big the record was going to be. It was number one in Germany for six weeks. Really? Yeah. In Russia, it was number one for about 10 weeks. Wow. And it was number one in all the countries that had conscription still. Right, okay. So Germany had conscription. Russia, Israel, all these places, it was huge. 
massive, massive song. And it did well over in England as well. It did yeah. well in the chart. And of course, the album came out and, yeah, it, it went from there, really. I have to say, it's a great album. Calling is my favourite song on the album, particularly. But really? Yeah, I love it. Just love that song, yeah. Yeah, it's a good, good song, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I had a great time with the band. And it just got to a point where, as I said about the touring, I mean, I've never seen my kids grow up and I've re- got some new, remarried and got a little little girl and I wanted to be there for her. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to be there for my kids. You know, I didn't want to you know, be off touring away for four, four or five months at a time. You know, it's just that was how it was for me. You know, everyone's different. Sure. Other people think, oh, I don't care, I'm just going to be out touring. But for me and family, it's quite important. You know, and uh, and then I, I got into doing the school stuff as well. So that was great. Um, and since then, it's good for me because... I've done lots of stuff that I would never have done musically yeah. with other people. Because we're, if you're in a, a band like Quarrel, you're not doing a lot of other stuff because you can't, you haven't got the time to do it. Oh, no, of course, of course, of course. Now, I'd, I'd like to just quickly touch on the rock till you drop thing because I remember that vividly, four shows in one day, you know? Four shows in a day, yeah. And we're not, that was when I was young and fit. <laughs> and we're not talking like club dates here, are we? No. No, we had rehearsals. We were rehearsing in Brave Film Studios. Yeah. We had four huge stages set up yeah. all the way around with four lots of identical equipment. So I had four kits, four lots of stacks and all that for different guitars, all identical so we'd rehearse on one stage, get all the sound right, then go to the next stage, do the same thing again, the next, and do it a whole lot. And then all that stuff would go on to different venues. And, uh, yeah, it just it was unbelievable. So we started off, I think the first was in uh, Sheffield. Yeah. Then we, got, uh, then we flew up to... Glasgow, I think, I think it was. And then we got, we was helicopter back down to uh, Birmingham, NEC. And then again, down to London, all in the day. And Chris Tarrant was with us at the time. And Cheryl Baker as well. <laughs> yeah, and they did all, they did like a whole sort of, you know, film about it and all that. But it's great, we, we raised a quarter of a million in a day. For, for children's charities. So it was, a, it was a good thing. It was great publicity for the band as well. And, and you, yeah. I mean, a quarter of a million is, is a lot of money at any point, but back then, in, is it 90, is it 90 or 91? I can't remember exactly, but... Early 90s it was, yeah. Then? In fact, yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got no, my, my discs are in the other room. I've got oh. discs on it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, it was great. I mean, it's a lot of money then. Yeah. Uh, and... You equate that to today's money, you're talking millions. Yeah, 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 big time. So uh, people were so pleased, the charities were so pleased that we did it and we raised all that money. And it was really hard. The last gig, oh. it felt like I was dragging the moist miner up, up a hill by my bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice analogy, isn't it? So I'll, I'll use that one. <laughs> <laughs> There's one more thing I'd like to talk about. Now, as you know, this is a drummer's um, channel, podcast, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. The iconic sight of you with Quo is that big, white, beautiful projector, Premier Projector kit. Yeah. Um, did, I have, did I have the... The, the, uh, the rack? Thing round, the rack round me. Yeah. 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 And, and obviously all the pasty symbols hanging down. But that, I mean, you've obviously had quite um, a, a long... Uh, I don't know if romance is the right word with Premier, haven't you, from early days? Yeah, it? yeah. Just talk us through, I mean, that, that Well, the kit, I, I had a great relationship with Premier because Premier were synonymous with Quo because before me, John Cobden used Premier as well. So they, 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 the band had been using Premier Jones for many, many years. So when I joined the band, I actually had a Tama kit at the time. Because mm-hmm. I had a deal with Tama, but that was getting a bit of a pain because getting parts coming out from 
Japan and it wasn't easy always get to get parts and everything for the kits. So I was approached by Premier. I said, yeah, I'm out to the factory. And they said, what do you want? I told them what sort of kit I wanted. And um, it just went from there, really. It was just, it was great. We, we, we designed the kit that I wanted and sizes and everything. And uh, what, what sort of kit I wanted. And, you know, it was, it was really good. They, were, they, they bent over backwards to, to accommodate me. And, it, and then, of course, then they found this guy in America that was making these um, racks. But they were unusual because they were curved. They weren't just do, 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 which is how I originally, my original rack was the straight thing. This was curved, the curved bar there, then another bar at the top. And they, were, they were held together and then it went into this great big um, metal plinth yeah. and weighed a ton. I mean, but the whole thing had a big flight case on it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So they, 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 what they do, they he used to take the symbols off, but everything else was there, and then it was just all going. It won't go over the firecase would go over the top on wheels into the truck. <laughs> that took a fair old chunk of space up in the truck, then. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, was it massive. A, was it a, was it Volker or something like that? Was that the yeah Volker right? Yeah. Greg Volker, his name was, absolute fruitcake, nutter. He came over from California, you know, real laid-back California guy. But, yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it was really made really well. Yeah. The crones, all crones and everything. Probably. So God knows where it is now. I've got a clue. <laughs> Some, in a warehouse somewhere. Probably. But for me, that that your setup was pretty iconic at the time. And uh, yeah. I, I remember I, I used to look at your rack toms. You had... It was generally four across, wasn't it? And they all, yeah. it looked like you'd got a ruler and put them, they were look, looked straight almost. I was like, how the hell did you get around them? But you did, <laughs> you know. I always have them slightly angled. I'd never have them flat. Yeah. I'd have them slightly angled, but quite close together. Yeah. So, you know, so, and the good thing about a rack is once, once you've got the stuff on there, it all goes back in the same place. It's all memory locked and everything. You know, and I had one Simmons pad there for, for effects that I was doing, and then a, another thing here for water coming out and all that business. It was great. It was, it was great the way it was set up. Yeah, it looked, looked amazing. Uh, and, you know, I used to jump up and down on it and all that business, you know. It's, it's, it's a great, great bit of kit. For me, that is totally iconic, though, of the 80s, you know. Yours and Roger Taylor's kit and, and just a few others at the time, and it's just like... Takes me straight back looking at a picture. <laughs> the, the, the drums were after I get the white kit. I had a, a blue kit made as well, which was really nice. And uh, the nice, see, I used to go up to the factory and I used to walk around. Hello, Jeff, and all, everyone knew me around the factory. And I'd stop and I'd see the guys because it was all a lot of it's handmade at the factory. Sure, um, everything was done properly. It was. It was per. It was, see, for me, it made me really proud to use something that was British, that was made here, that and you know their chrome was second to none. They took me to the crop where they did the chrome, the place where they did the chrome. It's unbelievable the way they did it. And of course, Premier Chrome is the best in the world. Simple, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. No, nope. even now, I mean, you can't compare it to any other chrome. You you get kits now. 50, 60 years old, and the chrome looks like new. Absolutely, totally. In fact, here you are, I can show you. Wait a second. Oh. What you got there? <laughs> Look at that. It's a, What's... It's a Royal Ace. And a it's, Royal Ace. So that's what, 60-ish, something like that? Yeah. That, yeah. Is that got the, the big the throw that goes down like yes, that? So. Certainly has, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. it a parallel action? That's it, yeah. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. So that's that's an example of really good Premier Chrome. <laughs> well, I was telling you about this 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 snare drum here. You don't see many Ludwig snare drums, old ones that have got chrome like that because they didn't last. Oh. They peel off, and you know, and that's the thing with Premier. The chrome was the best of anywhere, anywhere you can find, and those drums were fantastic quality drums, really good. It's just that. Unfortunately, they went through such a bad patch where they had buyouts and then another company would come in and 
and do stuff and then they would go and then someone else would come in and and now it's all made in Taiwan. The factory's gone. Yeah, sad, sad. But it is because there's no I think there's no isn't a British drum company make drums. There's yeah, no indeed they do. Keith, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've heard about them. Incredible and uh incredible. Are they good drums? Beautiful drums, yes. But the, for my money, uh, I'm not affiliated in any way, but that, that they're the finest drums on the planet now, uh, you know, in my humble opinion. Well, the British Drum Company? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I'm not, I might have to get in touch with them then, because, I, I mean, I, I, I'd sooner use a British company rather than an American company, to oh, be honest. I'm, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to show you around the factory and show you the process. Uh, I, I've, I've been, and it's the, the detail, honestly, is just... I'll, I'll get the details off you at some point. Definitely. So we'll, we'll sort that out, because I love, I love to, to have a look at their stuff. I know, uh, is it Colin? Colin Woolway, do you know him? I know is Colin, it? yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I know he endorses them now, because he was talking about when he got the endorsement off them, you know, he's so pleased that he... Had an endorsement, so yeah, he's he's, he's real. He, re, he really he speaks their prices, and you know, and I, I like I like the the premier uh, connection as well through Keith, you know. So it's, uh, it's yeah, a little yeah. bit of it in there, which is nice. I, I think anyway, personally. But. Well, of course it is. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good. So well, that's that's we're up to date now with the crow thing. So I mean, I, I don't crow. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I speak to Francis a lot, Francis yeah. Rossi. We talk uh, normally once, a, once, a, sort of twice a month, something like that. You know, quite a lot. And uh, he he suffered as well with this lockdown. Although he doesn't go out anyway, to be honest. Right. He's, he's a bit of a recluse where that's concerned. But I think it's the fact that he couldn't do any play anywhere. That was the thing. Doing the gigs, Tough same as everyone else. So, but well, there we go. There things, you go. Things are, are getting slightly better again. Once, the, hopefully, they are anyway. And you know, it'd be nice. yeah, I've got a gig at the end of the month with, with that band. Um, I've had another one just come in. Um, I'm actually doing. Um, I've just had an email from the Status Quo Fan Club Convention. All oh, right. That, that once a year they have one a, a big to do at Minehead, but Butlins yeah. in Minehead. Yeah. They want me to go there and do a, a, a little workshop for them, and then there's a band called State State Sound of Status, I think they're called. Yeah. They're from Sweden or one of the Scandinavian countries, and I've seen them. They're really good, and they want me to go up and play with them, do some songs with them. Yeah. So that'd be good fun to do that. Uh, so yeah, I've got I've got lots of different bits coming up now, different bands and all that. As I said, it's nice to do different playing, different musicians all the time. It's really good for your playing. Yeah, absolutely. To do that. Yeah, it keeps it keeps it fresh, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, so yeah, yeah. Oh, I was going to I was going to show you the, uh, the oh, yeah. snare drum before please, I go. Please do. Yeah, we were talking about this before. Yeah, this is a bit special. <sighs> See if I can get it out of the case without. Um, Camera for a minute. Let's have a look. Take it around here so you can see it better. Yeah. So, can you see that? So I'll yeah. turn it up to the. And we all know what that is. <laughs> yeah. So, that, can you see the engraving on it? Oh, yes. Beautiful. Yeah. That is gorgeous. And it's got the, it's got the parallel action. It's, it's just super sensitive. Yeah, and that is just an incredible sounding drum. I've used it on so many things over the years, albums and whatever. I used it on all the crow stuff. Did you really? Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's been used on so so much stuff, and it's uh, it's just an iconic sound. And that was used on Master of Puppets as well. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs> well, crow were doing um. Def Leppard were doing this um, album, uh, and um, Lars Ulrich was with Metallica, and he was in the studio next door, and they couldn't get a snare drum sound. So they said to Rick, can we borrow that snare, because it sounds so good. And they used it on the whole album, and that was Master of Puppets. <laughs> 
Good God. So you saying that Rick actually gifted you that? Yeah, what it was, we took, we, he, he had it set up on the kit. And at the time, he was using all the pads. And he said, look, I've got no use for this. I can't use a normal snare because I've got to use all the triggers and everything. Oh, yeah. So he said, do you want it? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'll have it. At the time, you know, and that, that was it. So I got it off him. That's, that's it's worth it. It's worth a lot of money. <laughs> a whole bunch of history right there, isn't it? You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eventually, I, I might sell it, but not yet. I will do eventually, but when I've because I've got so many snare drums now. Yeah, but that's so that's very special. I have to say, it, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, someone offered me. I think it was the guy we were doing. We were doing a festival in. What's the band that that, that band? Um, I think they're from Russia or Germany. Scorpions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were doing a gig, and the drummer came up to me, and he, he knew about the snare. He's be Herman. He said, Herman Rarebell. Yeah. And he said, well, would you how much would you take for that snare drum? I said, it's not for sale, mate. He said, I'll give you 10000 for it. Right, okay. I said, no way. I said, I'm not selling it. Because it's, it's my go-to snare drum. I use it a lot on different stuff, you know. So I know, I know it's worth. It's worth a lot of money because of what of the what they call the provenance yeah. of it. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like if a famous guitar player claps and was selling a guitar, and it went to auction. I mean, Francis just sold his his about Telecaster. He went to Bonhams. He got a couple of hundred thousand for it. I think. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't it? Just... Yeah, but it, it, it's unplayable. Did you did you not know? No. The reason he can't, the reason he doesn't play it anymore, or he didn't play it, was because the wood had gone soft, so it wouldn't stay in tune. Oh right, okay. So it's just an ornament. It's just a collector's piece now. Yeah. Wow. Whereas this is a playable drum. Yeah. That is something that you can use. It's an instrument you'd use all the time. But, uh, Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, great instrument. Wow, Bit of history. So, that's... Yeah. you've been a, um, a, a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for giving up. Your... Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, totally fascinating. It really is, and, and it's been a pleasure chatting to you. So, thank you so much. Most, yeah, I, I've really, really enjoyed it. So, uh, thanks very much. Hopefully, we'll see you soon. Thanks very much, mate. Yeah. Take care now. Thank you. All right. Bye.